We are a people that follow after those things that make for peace, love, and unity. Dear friends, this episode marks the beginning of a new Ohio Yearly Meeting podcast series. In it, we will be reading Eye of Faith by Bill Tabor. It is a history of Ohio Yearly Meeting by a much-respected seasoned friend and recorded minister. We hope you will enjoy this reading and perhaps some gain some insights about Ohio conservative friends. The Eye of Faith A History of Ohio Yearly Meeting Conservative by William P. Tabor, Jr. Copyright, 1985 Forward This book is dedicated to the members of Ohio Yearly Meeting who were not mentioned on its pages, to those friends who lived quiet, faithful, industrious lives, thereby providing the backbone and the living body of Ohio Yearly Meeting during past and present generations. This book began to take shape many years ago as a result of my search into the roots of the Quaker culture I had known as a boy. Some of the most distinctive elements of that culture were already disappearing, even in my boyhood. Like others of my generation who were nurtured by that dying and evolving culture, I knew that it had been given me something very precious, even as I also knew that both it and I must evolve beyond some of its old limitations. That double awareness only increased my sense of loss as I watched my generation's beloved grandmothers and grandfathers, who were the last examples of that way of life, grow old and die. They had still worn some version of the old-fashioned plain clothing, and they had still spoken of an older, gentle language full of nuances about listening for guidance and of feeling for the right way. As they died, it was as if part of the old culture were vanishing with them, and it seemed as if pieces of myself were dying at the same time. And so I began many years of studying and pondering the history of this group of Eastern Ohio Quakers, seeking to find the threads of living continuity which link earlier generations with those of us who have inherited their diluted tradition. Many people from other Quaker groups have encouraged me to publish this study in hope that it might help to keep alive some of the special qualities they have found among conservative friends in Ohio and elsewhere. It seems clear that Ohio friends will continue to change as all things must change, especially at this time in history. Therefore, it is important that conservative friends have some understanding of their history and the fact that they have inherited a museum Quakerism with some precious elements that have been lost or weakened in most other Quaker groups. Some aspects of this museum Quakerism may rightly have lived out their time and do indeed belong in museums and history books. But other parts of this inheritance are indispensable links between the powerful Quakerism of the past and the powerful Quakerism of the New Age to come. And that is partly why I have written this book. I have also written it out of love for the peculiar people of many generations who have nurtured me. I have written it as a historian whose objectivity is both helped and hindered by being a member of this family, this tribe, this Ohio Yearly Meeting. Both this book and Be Gentle, Be Plain 
show how a higher yearning meeting and only friend school are, as one Indian once told me, something like a tribe. I took his comment for an encouragement, for the record shows that wherever Quakerism or any other form of Christianity has been strong, then the religious fellowship has always been experienced as family, as tribe. The title for this book, The Eye of Faith, comes from the words written by J. Witherall Hutton near the end of his life as he sought to inspire his younger friends to look forward to the future with hope. Sources for this history can be found chapter by chapter at the end of the book. Although the original manuscript had the usual footnote documentation, it seemed appropriate to simplify the book by eliminating footnotes in a way that would still allow the reader with scholarly interest to investigate the relevant sources. Thanks are due to many people who have helped in this work, especially to my wife, Frances Tabor, who encouraged and supported my work on the 1965 thesis, The History of Ohio Yearly Meeting Conservative from Beginning until 1917 for Earl School of Religion, and who typed the first manuscript. Thanks are also due to Wilmer Cooper, then Dean of Earlham School of Religion, Canby Jones, and Alexander Purdy for their careful reading and suggestions about that thesis, which is the basis for the first part of this book. Thanks are also due to Edwin Bronner and others at the Haverford Quaker Collection who facilitated my research into the history of conservative friends during my year as a T. Winster Brown scholar there. Records at 6th Street Meeting, Salem, Ohio, and in the Ohio Yearly Meeting Archives at Olney Friends School and in the Historical Committee's collection at Barnesville, Ohio, have been extensively consulted for this book. Special thanks are also due to James Cooper and other members of Ohio Yearly Meeting's Representative Meetings Committees who read the manuscripts and raised funds which made the book possible. And thanks to those who gave money for the project. Many other people have helped with this history by sharing information and memories and documents over many years, and by reading parts of the manuscript and making suggestions. I am also grateful for the encouragement of the Pendle Hill community, where some of the research and final writing of the book were completed. Louis Olson was of great help in editing the manuscript, and thanks also to John Morgan and the Raven Rocks Press for their careful, sensitive work with this book. Introduction. The Eye of Faith is the story of one branch of the Ohio Quaker tree. This book will follow the history of the original tree and its successive branchings in order to tell the full story of the only branch that is still called Ohio Yearly Meeting. The story of Ohio Yearly Meeting began before the tree had branched, before Quakerism had begun to divide into different theological and cultural groups. For its roots, Ohio Yearly Meeting looks back to the time when there was a distinct and international Quaker way of life during the 50 years before the separations of 1827 and 1828. Of course, Quakerism was never fully united and static. Even in those 50 years before the Great Separations, there were differences of opinion about how rapidly and how far Quakerism should continue to evolve. It is also important to remember that Quakerism of those years 
had already developed in complexity and formality beyond the Quakerism of George Fox and the early Society of Friends. Quakerism was already old, by American standards, when the first Quaker pioneers found their way into western Pennsylvania and the Ohio Territory. As early as 1647, the first scattered Quaker groups had begun to develop around the young George Fox in the English Midlands. By 1652, after a few years of gradual growth, they exploded into a rapidly expanding movement which was soon sending missionaries throughout and beyond the British Isles. By 1660, Quakers were already so numerous in New England that they held the first of the New England yearly meetings which have been held every year since that time. By the year 1700, after severe persecution in the British Isles and in some of the American colonies, Quakerism was firmly established on both sides of the Atlantic and in a few parts of Europe. Quakers in North America had become so numerous and respected that they held positions of leadership or political influence in Rhode Island, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and North Carolina. And they also had significant groups in other colonies. Their strongest center was William Penn's Holy Experiment in Pennsylvania, where Quakers were dominant economically and politically until a few years before the American Revolution. The earliest Quaker pioneers in Ohio were part of a religious subculture that had clearly defined boundaries, rules, and operating procedures. These outward forms had developed in order to protect the daring formlessness of the Quaker religious life. At the heart of the Quaker experience was the discovery that God, through Christ, is present and available to all people. This inward presence could be experienced as light, transformation, guidance, and communion, but only if an individual obeyed the inward guide and remained faithful to it. The overwhelming spiritual experiences of George Fox and the early Quakers or friends had caused them to do away with most church practices. So the friends had no priests, no ordained ministers, no prepared prayers, no prepared sermons, no programmed church services, no written creeds, and not even the outward sacraments of baptism and communion. They had no sacred buildings, and they did not consecrate their burial grounds, for God is present everywhere. Even weddings and funerals were conducted without priest, minister, or prayer book. In spite of Quaker insistence that they followed no human leaders and no humanly divine patterns of organization or church government, they were remarkably well-organized, cohesive, and distinctive. They could usually be distinguished by their plain clothing, their plain speech of thee and thou, their passion for being honest in speech and business. They had a simple and non-ostentatious lifestyle, which did not include music, dancing, drama, excessive use of alcohol, or gambling. They were also distinguished for their pacifism and for their concern to abolish slavery, capital punishment, and unfair treatment of Indians. They had a reputation for doing well in business, for being charitable, for caring for their own poor, and for educating their children in their own schools. Membership in this visible society of friends was bestowed automatically at birth, though there continued to be many convinced 
or new friends during the early years of this history. The center of the society was its meeting for worship, usually held twice a week in a plain, unadorned meeting house. The building was usually divided into two sides by movable partitions called shutters, which were open during worship. Plainly dressed men and boys sat on one side of the open shutters, and plainly dressed women and girls and infants sat on the other. Most of the benches faced the front of the room, where there were two or three rows of facing benches. At the time of the meeting grew near, families would divide into male and female groups and go quietly into the building and take their seats in silence. A few men and women, most of them older friends with especially plain dress, would sit on the raised facing benches on their side of the building. These facing bench friends had been selected as having the gift of eldership or the gift of ministry, but they remained silent like the others. The peaceful stillness of a Quaker meeting might go on for an hour or more with little outward activity other than the crying or cooing of a child. Even the children, according to the old journals, could sometimes feel the miracle of a special presence binding the worshippers together into what was called a covered or gathered meeting. Though friends had given up rites of outward baptism and communion, they believed that spiritual baptism and communion could and did occur during these times. Sometimes, out of the silence, a man or woman would be moved to rise and speak a message which had formed itself during the meeting. Such speaking might come forth in the almost musical, though unstudied, chant which was common to Quaker ministers. Friends believed that such ministry might speak to the condition of one listener worshiper or the entire meeting, just as the prophets of the Old Testament and New Testament were able to speak to the secret needs of the people around them. Sometimes a friend would be moved to kneel and pray aloud, at which time the entire meeting would rise to its feet as a sign of reverence to God and remain standing throughout the prayer. The meeting would end, not by the clock, but by the feeling of two men on the facing bench who would signal the end of meeting by shaking hands when they sensed that the Spirit was ready for the meeting to end. Then all people present shook hands with their neighbors, and the silence finally ended as they began to greet each other and move about. These friends had no Sunday schools or the usual forms of religious instruction, for they feared that formal programs of teaching about religion would lead people away to the need for personal and immediate experience of the Spirit in their own lives. However, most of the extemporaneous sermons preached in the meetings for worship were full of memorized biblical quotations or expositions of biblical stories. Many friends read the Bible and Quaker writings in their families, and many held daily silent worship in their homes. They believed that they should seek for communion and guidance at special times during the day, even though such guidance, or a strong, unexpected sense of the presence, might come to them at any time. The basic unit of the Society of Friends was the monthly meeting, which, in the early part of this history, could include several preparative meetings, or small congregations. Preparative meetings could consider certain business concerning their own affairs, but all important questions like requests for membership or transfer of membership, matters of discipline, requests for marriage, the recognition of ministers, 
and the appointment of elders and overseers were handled by the monthly meeting. Like the meeting for worship, Friends' monthly meetings for business was distinctly different from the meetings of other churches. During the early parts of this history, the monthly meeting for business was held just after the full-length midweek meeting for worship, or, more accurately, the business meeting was a continuation of the meeting for worship, for the final shaking of hands would not occur until the business meeting came to an end. The signal that the business part of the meeting was about to begin was usually given by an elder who would rise and suggest that it seemed to be an appropriate time to begin business. For a moment, nothing would happen. The silence would continue. Then, one or more men, depending on the size and arrangements of the meeting house, would close the shutters and doors between the men's and women's side so the men and women might conduct their business meetings at the same time. Next, the clerk and assistant clerk would go to the clerk's table, open the minute book, and arrange their papers while the meeting remained in worshipful silence. Even after the clerk had read the opening minute, the silence would continue. For these friends believed the church business should be conducted in a spirit of worship, so that they could hear or feel the will of God in every matter before them. The clerk's main function was not to act as presiding officer, but to be a listener, a discerner, and recorder of the will of God as it came through the sense of the meeting. When an issue came before the meeting, friends would rise to speak as they felt moved, sometimes with long silences between speakers. There were never any motions or votes. Friends simply stayed with an issue until the clerk could sense agreement, which he then recorded and read back to the meeting. If friends agreed with the clerk's minute of agreement, the clerk then moved on to the next item. If they did not agree with his minute, the discussion would continue, be referred to a committee, or be deferred until another time. One important item of business in the monthly meeting was the reading and answering of the queries. Although friends had staunchly refused to have a creed or formal teaching ministry, they did have, by the time our yearly meeting began, a book called The Discipline to help them guide their lives and the way they conducted their church business. Included in the discipline were both advices and queries. The advices were read aloud to the meeting at least once a year, and each of the nine queries had to be read and answered in writing at least once during the year. For example, the eighth query read, quote, Are friends careful to bear a testimony against slavery? Do they provide in a suitable manner for those under their direction who have had their freedom secured, and are they instructed in useful learning? Unquote. Each monthly meeting was required to send its answers to each query to the quarterly meeting at specified times. Four times a year, the monthly meeting would send representatives to the quarterly meeting, which could also be attended by any friend belonging to one of its constituent monthly meetings. Like the monthly meeting, the quarterly meeting met first as a full-length meeting for worship before its shutters were closed, so the men and the women's quarterly meetings for business could begin. Quarterly meeting had the power to establish or discontinue monthly meetings. In general, it was the authority to which a monthly meeting could appeal for advice or help, and it was the authority to which a monthly meeting must defer. In turn, all quarterly meetings reported to the yearly meeting and submitted to it as the final authority in Quaker Church government.
Like the preparative monthly and quarterly meetings, the yearly meeting was composed of separate men's and women's meetings for business, which were conducted in the same worshipful, non-voting manner. The yearly meeting received and summarized answers to the queries from each quarterly meeting and in turn made a summary of the summaries to show the state of the yearly meeting. These summaries were included with the yearly meeting minutes, which began to be printed and distributed during the 1820s. The yearly meeting met for as many days as necessary, usually for about a week. Although Quaker women had been given a remarkable degree of authority and leadership in church affairs for the time in history, their business meetings did not yet have equal authority with the men's meetings. The men had final authority in matters of discipline and property until the men's and women's meetings were made fully equal and revised in the discipline of 1922. Ministers and elders of each monthly meeting met, with men and women together, every four months in the meeting of ministers and elders, which had its own queries and advices. These friends often had considerable influence in the life of the meeting, since they were usually appointed for life. This group, in turn, reported to a quarterly meeting of ministers and elders, which in turn reported to the yearly meeting of ministers and elders, which met usually twice during the week of the regular yearly meeting. Meetings of the ministers and elders were not open to the general membership. Earlier in the 18th century, the monthly meeting had taken the initiative in appointing elders and recognizing ministers. But by the time Ohio Yearly Meeting published its own discipline in 1819, the nominating initiative was officially placed in the local meetings of ministers and elders, who sent their nomination up to the quarterly meeting of ministers and elders for approval or disapproval before the monthly meeting was given a chance to ratify or reject the nomination. Consequently, this important leadership group became an almost self-perpetuating body in Ohio Yearly Meeting into the 1950s. To have been a faithful friend meant sitting through a great number of long meetings, especially if one held positions of responsibility and served on committees. It also meant considerable travel, as well as receiving and giving hospitality for meals and lodging. Men and women who had been recorded as ministers might have a special burden laid upon them by the Spirit to travel in the ministry to friends in other areas for weeks, months, or even years. More than one observer has pointed out that even though the early Quakers did not observe the religious holidays of other Christians, they did have their own kind of holiday visiting at times of their monthly, quarterly, and yearly meetings, and whenever traveling ministers came their way. Having given up worldly diversions and recreations, the Quakers seemed to put even more value on visiting with relatives, friends, and traveling Quakers. Such was the Quaker culture out of which Ohio Yearly Meeting grew. This concludes our reading of the foreword and introduction. Next time, we will begin our reading with Chapter 1, The Early History, 1775-1828. We would encourage friends to rate and review these episodes on the podcast platform of their choice. Positive reporting helps others to find our podcasts. The podcast they just heard is a production of Ohio Yearly Meeting. It was read by Chip Thomas and the audio edited by the same. The words to our introduction are from Margaret Fell's 1660 letter to King Charles concerning the Quaker Peace Testimony.
The music was composed and sung by Paulette Meyer. We are a people that follow after those things that make for peace, love, and unity. It is our desire that others' feet may walk in the same. We do deny and bear our testimony against all strife and wars and contention. 